Well, you might be wondering why I'm wearing the red stole today. I, I, did I get my calendar confused? Did I think it was Pentecost all of a sudden, and so I threw the red on. Um, today is ordination and installation of deacons and elders, and so uh, red is customary, the color that we wear uh, for those ordinations, and so I'm wearing it today. You might be wondering if I'll be wearing a robe every single week as well, uh, since we last left off with the uh, holiday season. I was wearing a robe throughout Advent and Christmas Eve, and now here I am back, and I'm wearing a, a robe once again. Uh, I do not have plans to wear a robe next week, so you'll have to tune in next week to see if that happens or not, but I'm not planning to wear a robe next week. Eugene Peterson writes some interesting words in his introduction uh, to 1 Corinthians, and our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians, but he writes these words in, in what is called the message remix in his intro there. He says, when people become Christians, they don't at the same moment become nice. <laughs> when people become Christians, they don't at the same moment become nice. Of course, a cursory reading of 1 Corinthians, if you were to read through that uh, entire book, uh, you would probably come to a similar conclusion as Peterson here. The church at Corinth has problems. They have significant problems. And knowing that this church is in a city who in the ancient world had the reputation of being unruly, of being hard drinking, of also uh, being sexually promiscuous, that's the reputation of the city. It becomes clear that old habits die hard as we read through uh, 1 Corinthians. And these new Christians have brought their Corinthian reputation to the church. Someone needs to say something here, and they need to say it fast to this audience. So the problems not only mar the witness of this community, they actually threaten to destroy the community altogether. We might say here that the good news of God's love is here met by a group of people living very unlovely lives. The good thing here is that's not the final word. And the scriptures continue in the good news of the gospel that that's never the final word. God has a different word for us and for them. So what's happening here? Well, a little context here. Our text falls in a new section, actually, in, in 1 Corinthians that begins with the beginning of chapter uh, 12. We get somewhat of the idea of what that section is about just by reading verse 1 of chapter 12, where it says here, Now concerning spiritual gifts. And the translation that we use here in the, in the pews that we've been using here at John Knox, the NRSV, actually offers an alternative reading to that first verse, not simply saying now concerning spiritual gifts, but actually down in the footnotes says now concerning spiritual persons. These both seem, though, like two completely different ideas. Spiritual gifts, spiritual persons, those seem like they're not even the same thing. So what's going on with that? Well, the variety here is something that speaks to the underlying Greek uh, language that this is translated from. Elsewhere, we'll see in Paul's writings, when he talks about spiritual gifts, he'll use a word from which we get our modern-day charismatics from. He uses what charisma or charismata to identify spiritual gifts. And we see that actually in our text. In verse 4, the word for gifts is drawing on that Greek word. But in verse 1, he's going to employ different language. He's going to use a completely different word. He says pneumatikos, or what we might translate as spiritual. You can hear in that pneuma. Pneuma is the word for spirit in the Greek. Uh, but the, translate this word spiritual or having to do with the spirit. One commentator actually suggested that this reading could be translated as being matters related to the spirit or as some of you are familiar with N.T. Wright's work. He translates this about things relating to the spirit's work. So why, why would Paul be interested at this point in 1 Corinthians, again, to an audience that has been up to, uh, we might say, uh, some real troubling things, why would, why would he write to them at this point to clarify the Spirit's work? Why would he want to do that? 
Well, the short answer is that this community of the Spirit had gotten the Spirit wrong. That may not seem all that serious upon first glance, but knowing what Paul has already made the point that they are God's temple and that the Spirit dwells in you, that's, he said that earlier in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, it is clear that this Corinthian church had lost its way. Just how lost is seen in the first few verses before our current passage. Verse 1 ends with the Corinthians identified as uninformed. Ignorance or lack of understanding are also within view of the particular Greek word that's used there. And that must have stung a little bit. Thinking to an audience that prides itself on its knowledge, prides itself on wisdom, prides itself on having things right, to hear that they're ignorant and that they lack understanding must have had a little bite to it. Verse 2 makes the point that their pagan past actually contributed to their spiritual ignorance. And really, how could it have prepared them? How could their past have prepared them for where they found themselves in the Christian life? The God who's introduced in the Hebrew Bible, right from the very beginning, the God who's revealed to us in Genesis 1, is a God who speaks. We see that in the creation account. Here's God's voice. It's, it's spoken. Things are spoken into being. And we hear that the same God throughout Scripture speaks through prophets. And we learn from the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 that God has now spoken to us in God's Son. That's a considerable contrast between the God who speaks and these mute idols that are described here in 1 Corinthians, the mute idols that had led them astray in their past as Corinthians. And so lesson one in the primer is illustrated in verse three with yet another contrast, how you declare who Jesus is. Jesus be cursed or Jesus is Lord. And I might note here that Jesus is Lord is significant in the Jewish world, uh, particularly as you think about things like the Shema and the declaration about who Yahweh is in the sense that Jesus is equated with Yavah, or how some people pronounce it, Yahweh or Jehovah. And so at this point, that's significant. But even in the Roman world, that would be significant in a culture that would say that Caesar is Lord, to say that Jesus is Lord. So where does that come from? Paul makes the point in verse 3. Those who declare that Jesus is Lord are spirit-enabled. That is, the Holy Spirit that causes them to speak what we might say prophetic speech, which follows a long tradition of Jewish and Christian thinking that is the spirit who moves us to prophetic speech. And we can see such passages as Isaiah 61, the spirit is upon me. And so you begin to speak these things. So let's get this right. We don't know what we don't know. That's where the Corinthians are at. Our upbringing hasn't prepared us for the way we think it has, or it hasn't prepared us for the way that life we think life is. Our reliance on it actually is hindering our growth. That's the Corinthians as well. And so much so, it's hindering the Corinthians here from seeing the spirit at work in their sisters and brothers who declare Jesus is Lord. I'm glad that we in the 21st century don't have any of these problems, that this doesn't speak to us, that our past doesn't hold us back, that we can easily see within sisters and brothers we might disagree with, uh, that they are spirit-enabled, spirit-filled, and that we don't have the type of problem that we would be uninformed because we have been fully formed and fully informed in this day and age. We know that's not true. We know, like the Corinthians, we face similar difficulties even in our day and age. This is where we find ourselves. And the good news here is Paul provides a primer for us on what spiritual living or the matters of the Spirit look like from the Christian perspective to the church in the first century, but also in the 21st century. And here's what he says. Two things this morning. We'll keep it really simple, make it really short, make it easy to remember. 
Here's what Paul says. Lesson number one. From God, by God. From God, by God. There's variety. We see that in the text. There's a variety when it comes to how God is at work through the Spirit in the life of the church. There's a variety of expression, we might say. And not just here in Corinthians, the narrative of Scripture makes it clear. As we read throughout the entire Bible, we see that as the Spirit empowers people, we see artisans at the, at the making of the tabernacle who are inspired or empowered. We see warriors and prophets. We see those uh, folks being empowered by the Spirit. We even see healers. And this list is only a few of the ways that God's power has come on people and has enabled them and empowered them into such roles. And clearly that variety is noted here and in the last part of our particular text this morning. Verses 4 through 6, it states that the varieties of gifts, services, and activities, uh, while the last part, verses 8 through 10, identifies some of that, those pieces that compose this variety. It talks about things of wisdom and knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miracles, and the list goes on and on. So stemming from this comes particular callings. So when you think about gifts or manifestations of the Spirit, there's particular callings. And we see callings today, like in our congregation this morning, as we will later on in the service, uh, we welcome uh, by installing folks into ordered ministry. We welcome in deacons and elders uh, in this process. We recognize that each of these is a unique calling, that those who uh, have been called to these places of governance have been empowered and enabled by the Spirit, and we've recognized that as a community, and today we welcome them into those leadership roles. In a way, we're welcoming God's Spirit to continue to be at work in this place. We're being faithful to the way that God is moving and expressing uh, these different gifts in our community. So people who serve to discern and measure the congregation's fidelity to the Word of God, who strengthen and nurture its faith in life, that's elders. That's what they do. They're given particular gifts and manifestations of the Spirit to carry out that work. Our deacons who are called to a ministry of caring, of love, of compassion, of prayer, and service, I like to think of this, if you wanted to catch the heart of the church, the heart of our congregation, spend a few minutes with our deacons. You can see the compassion and the sympathy that's shown to those in need who need care. And so particular giftings, uh, different, but some places there's crossover in the same. But the Spirit has made this possible. Many of us were raised to think that variety is a positive thing. After all, variety is the spice of life. But as quick, quickly as we might identify the variety, we might be just as quick to name one manifestation better than another. We might say that one is more spiritual, or one is more faithful than another. And it's usually the, the manifestation that benefits me is the one that's more faithful and more spiritual. That's one, the one that's more highly regarded. It doesn't take long for a pecking order to be established, and certain manifestations can be dismissed without even a thought. Of course, something quite opposite can occur too. We might give too much importance to a manifestation itself, missing the forest from the trees, as it were. But Paul's primary uh, argument here, the thing that he's trying to draw us to here, he's not trying to say simply that there's a variety of gifts because the Corinthians would have seen that. They would have seen the variety and there created some problems there with that variety, what's more important, whatnot. But they would have seen that. That's, that's clearly evident but what the Corinthians couldn't see, or the part they were missing, was the origin of the, that variety. That these gifts came from a oneness of source. That the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God, as it says in our text. And note the Trinitarian uh, formulation there, an early formulation in Scripture. If you want to pride yourself on a particular manifestation, 
on what God is doing in and through you, Paul would say this, don't. It's not about you. And these manifestations are not intended to make you look great. That's not what they're there for. They serve another purpose, and we'll come to that in a moment. Paul concludes this section by adding additional emphasis to this point, that these are all coming from God. These gifts come from God. All these are activated. He uses the word energeo, which is a word that we uh, see in the root there, energy. It's God's working. God is at work. But they're activated by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually just as the Spirit chooses. So here's a fun family action. Our kids' ministry has been doing family actions and really appreciated the the work that they're doing with that. It's uh, some fantastic things to be working on. Let me add one more here if I could put one in. Look for God amongst the Spirit's work in this community. Don't just look at the gift. Don't just look at the conduit. Look for the Spirit. Look for God who is at work. See past that gift. See past the person who's expressing that gift so that we might give glory to the one who it's rightly due and not fall in the error of praising person or gift. Okay, that's lesson one. From God, by God. But what for? Lesson two. All right, two things today. Lesson two. For good. More specifically, for common good. See see that in verse seven. In Acts 8, there's a, there's a character that we read about. He's an early Jesus follower. His name is Simon. You might be familiar with this character. Not Simon Peter, not that one. Uh, Simon is described as having previously practiced magic. Sometimes we call him Simon the Sorcerer or Simon the Magician. But here he is in Acts 8, verse 13. He, like many in his town, come to believe in the gospel. And so he hears the gospel message. He believes, and he's baptized. All right, so he's baptized. The text makes a note saying that they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. And so a couple of apostles show up. They're going to lay hands on folks, and they do so. And Simon sees something. He sees something. And we note this in the text. There's a couple of little cues there about what's going on in Simon's heart. One place where it says, he was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. So here's this person that was probably from a past where he had received some kind of acclaim for his own abilities by crowds. And now he sees in the gospel an opportunity to lay siege to yet more praise. And we see that kind of thing in his heart going on there. What happens, though, is later when Simon and others receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on the hands from Peter and John, it's, again, something that caught his eye. But he does something. He tries to buy it. He tries to buy the power, the ability to lay hands on people that they might receive. And of course, his interest here is, is met with the harshest of rebukes. If you haven't read Acts chapter 8 and you want to see what a rebuke could look like, Uh, Peter lays it on pretty heavy duty, so you could check that out at some point. But Simon's not alone in wanting this kind of ability, and this isn't limited to the first century. In the mid-1990s, there was a charismatic revival at the Toronto Airport Vineyard Church, and some of you might be familiar with this, particularly if I share with you the name that the British newspaper coined when they called it the Toronto Blessing. Uh, It was something that uh, created a lot of interest, and it it actually, the the blessing... uh, encouraged additional revivals in Florida, uh, places like Brownsville and and Lakeland. Um, And so throughout the 90s and then stemming even into the early 2000s, you had this revival that was happening that really sent a lot of people going to Florida, a lot of people going up to Toronto. And there was a number of people from here in the Northwest, here in our area, that could trace back uh, their own charismatic efforts uh, to receiving uh, God's blessing or God's 
uh, power by attending one of these uh, revival services. Pastors and gift seekers over the years have flocked, uh, and this wasn't just in that decade, but they have flocked to these type of places, hoping that they might not only experience God's blessing, but that they might also come from that place as a conduit of God's power. And so the sense of going there, hopefully receiving a call and maybe perhaps a new ministry and service. I think we can all acknowledge that there's an appeal uh, to that type of life, that type of experience. There's an appeal to experience God's power in a fresh and new way. There's an appeal to have a sense of supernatural, something outside of the ordinary of our normal lives, to sense God in a real, tangible way. There's a, there's a real appeal to that. And there's certainly an appeal to very specific kinds of spirit manifestations. The attendance in Toronto is one indicator to that. But I also took a minute this last week to scan uh, popular healing ministries and some of their leaders. And I noted that on one particular list I looked at, that one of the prominent figures, if I were to name him here, uh, many of you know who that person is right away, has a net worth of $40 million. And that was even the highest number on the list. And that tells us right away that there is an appeal here. There is an interest. You don't get to those type of numbers if you don't have a following of people who are seeking after that. Less scrupulous people throughout history have exploited human frailty to their own advantage, to their own gain, whether that's for gold, status, or both. And that can easily happen here with the manifestations, that people can see a gifting and and chase after it uh, because they're wanting something in their own life. But whatever self and personal interest one might have here. The Apostle Paul meets those expectations with this, and I'm going to sound like a broken record on this, but Paul's a broken record on this note. It's not about you. It's not about you. Now, we instead hear in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not my good alone, not for my ego, but for building up of the faith community, to build us up as a whole, to build us up together. Any benefit to the individual through whom the gift finds expression is derivative of the community being blessed. It's not the sole goal for me individually to find blessing or power. If in the first lesson we hear that we are to look to the giver of the gift and not to place so much emphasis on the manifestation itself or on the conduit, we come to see that the giver in the second one is in fact good that God is good, the Spirit at work for the good of all in the faith community. And yet another reason to offer expressions of gratitude and worship to God. So manifestations from God, by God, and for good, that seems like it would be easy to remember. Seems like we would get that, we'd hear that one time, like the Corinthians, we'd hear that, got it, got it, I'm good. But we actually forget. We spend most of our life forgetting things. And if you're getting older, I know I'm not super old. (laughs) I'm getting older, but I'm not super old. I've already come to recognize through some self-work that I am forgetting things with each passing day. Probably forgetting more than I'm learning these days, which is the problem. But to realize this, when we forget this type of thing, we end up thinking too highly of ourselves. We end up thinking too lowly of others and perhaps not thinking at all about God. And that's the real danger here. But with God's help, we can do better. So let me offer a way forward for us as a church. 
so that we might not commit the same error that we've seen in past generations, that we may not commit the same error that maybe perhaps we ourselves are so quick to move towards. This past week, and like many of you, I saw a picture in the news that I thought was particularly troubling. I saw a man standing in the nation's capitol building, a man standing in the capital of our union, holding a Confederate battle flag. Let that sink in for just a moment. That here in 2021, someone would stand in a symbol of our union holding a symbol of division. And not just that, we recognize that that flag has come to be equated with racist ideologies. And so it holds meaning and imagery that doesn't get any better the more you think about it. We find ourselves as a nation struggling to stand together. The church, our church, is not immune to such splintering or polarization. But with God's help, we can be different. We can be different. During my time serving the congregation in Connecticut, I had a chance to meet a great number of excellent people. Really excellent people. But the area I served had a reputation. If you think about Corinth, have a reputation. Darien, Connecticut, and Fairfield County had a reputation. Before I went to move there, someone here in the Northwest, a well-meaning minister, offered to me uh, words of advice based on the people that he had encountered while he himself had lived in America's Gold Coast. He said, you're going to find people there that fancy themselves as masters of the universe. All right, not He-Man and Skeletor but masters of the universe. And not only would they fancy themselves that way, but they would attempt to live into those fantasies. And I have to say, having lived there uh, for a little more than five years, uh, yes, there was a bit of that. There was a bit of that. But at the same time, I also found a community of really good people, people that were faithful disciples, people that you would be proud to call your friend, and people that I am proud to call my friends. And in this group, there was a young man of exceptional intelligence uh, who came from a family that was very gifted uh, intellectually um, and had enjoyed quite a bit of success because of that. If you imagine the academic elite, you think about the brightest in our nation, this young man would be one of them. He would be at that level. Incredible intellect. And as big as his intelligence was, one of the things I found in getting to know him was that his heart was probably equally as big. This is a person uh, who was a good person. But as is the case in life, we find ourselves at times alternating between what is good and really what is quite unlovely. Jesus slipped into adopting the attitude that what we possess is entirely of our own making, of our own doing, that it's for our own gain. And so what I would do oftentimes with him, I'm not going to share his name here, but um, just imagine as I'm telling a story, I'm thinking of him. One of the things I would share with him when I saw him uh, quite often, before we would uh, leave a youth group meeting or a confirmation class, before we would depart from our conversations, even a conversation I had with him a few months ago uh, still ended with this same line. I'd always say to him, remember to use your powers for good. No matter where life takes you, no matter what you're up against, 
no matter what you might think about or what you discover about yourself, remember to use your powers for good. Use them for good. Sisters and brothers in Christ, that's the same word for us this morning. Same word we hear from Paul, that we're to use our powers for good. And it includes not just those who come and gather and worship, uh, who might see yourself as, I'm just a member of the congregation. Uh, It also includes those in ordered ministry, deacons and elders. It includes this minister of word and sacrament, that we're called and we're given these expressions of the Spirit, these manifestations. We're given those so that we might use them for good. Not for my own good, but for the good of God's people. After all, the powers themselves are not from you. They're not from me. They're from God. And they're not for you. They're not just for me. They are God's gift for us all. May God use these gifts, may these manifestations of the Spirit in 2021, they use to build us as a community, to equip us for the road ahead that we might give glory to God all the more. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning as we gather as a church, as a congregation, that we're reminded once more that you are good, that you give your church the tools that we need, the resources we need, the spirit that we need, that we might live into a life of faithfulness together. And so, Lord, as a a people who have felt the pull to be fractured like our nation. Pray, Lord, that your spirit will once more hold us together. Help us to go past this season and to move into a place where we might together be one, just as the gifts come from one God, that we might be one people, serving you well, serving one another with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.